0: It's amazing what God has done in the past and what he's going to do in the future. And I started to say, not everybody's in church as a member, as a member, is, a member, is a saved. Uh, Finley Edge was a famous Southern Baptist professor of religious education at the seminary I went to. I remember one day he said, you know, we believe in a regenerate membership. You're just not a member by baby baptism that is supposed to be, you've been born again to be a member of Baptist church. He said, even with that, I believe, he said, I believe. That at least fifty percent of the people who are members of Southern Baptist churches have not been truly born again. One of the most interesting things um, in the Shantung revival, which was the most important Baptist revival in the history of the Baptist denominations of any Baptist denomination, Uh, and I'd always heard it. It was you know the most important, the the greatest revival, and so uh, right after Toronto happened. Um, within the first year, I I never read anything about Shantung, but my professor at seminary on evangelism, um, Dr. Uh, Louis Drummond, who later was the president of Southeastern Baptist and then went to Birmingham and was part of the uh, Spurgeon Institute of Church Growth. And, uh, uh, he said, you guys need to read about the Shantung Revival. It's the greatest revival in Baptist history. So I, I found it. It was out of print, and I found it in um, the Presbyterian Seminary and, and brought it, and I was getting ready to go to Europe for two weeks, so I know I, um, well, it was actually a month I was going to be gone. So I Xeroxed it because I had to have it back in two weeks, and I wasn't going to be gone for four. So I, I took it with me, and I was reading and I was so excited about it. Man, this is really, really exciting. So I told some people about it, and some, somebody wrote me uh, and sent me a book. It was published in 1970, I believe it was. The, the original was 1933. And so this is 1970. It said, you can't publish the book. It's already been republished by the Southern Baptist Convention in 1970. And so my friend who was traveling with me, he took it and read it. He said, well, I don't know why you want to print that book over anyway. It's boring. I said, what do you mean it's boring? it's just boring. I said, here, read this. The same title. And he said, now I know why you wanted to read that. Now, that one was exciting. I said, well, what's the difference? He said, they cut it all out. What do you mean they cut it out? All the stuff that was an embarrassment or doctrinally inconsistent, like falling, shaking, laughing in the Holy Spirit, trembling, healings, they cut it all out. So I republished it. Now, when I first republished it, I had a foreword in there. that made the connection between similarities between the greatest Baptist revival and Toronto. And the reason I did it, because the president of the Baptist Southern Baptist Convention in 1994 came on and said, we've had revivals in the Baptist denomination, but we have never seen the kind of stuff that's going on in Toronto. And I'm thinking, you haven't read your history? And uh, it, it, was, it was so similar. As a matter of fact, everything that happened while I was there is in that book. So uh, then I realized that I was stupid to put that as a forward because some of the people, they'd read it, and they wouldn't read it any farther. They'd just close it down. So the next time when I ran out and sold them all, I reprinted it, and I didn't put a forward. I just put an afterward. And everything I said in the forward, I said in the afterward, but then they'd already read it. <laughs> Worked much better. So I I asked my secretary to call all of the um, the Shantung Revival. I don't have it here, S-H-A-N-T-U-N-G, Shantung Revival. Um, Dennis Balcom was one of the great leaders in China today, told me that in January 1994, when a revival broke out in Toronto, simultaneously in the Shantung province, which is pronounced differently now than it was then, they were having a visitation that looked just like Toronto. And they had not heard about it. It was just happening simultaneously. Not only that, but there's another guy who went, who was an evangelist, who had gone up into Far East Russia with, amongst the uh, uh, natives like um, um, far west of Siberia even. Or, yeah, east of Siberia, Far be, far East Russia, I guess it would be. Yeah. It, I mean, it's, it's you yeah. Know, over there, where uh, Vladivostok's at, and uh, but anyway, um, he said he went back into the, like the Aleutian Islands where we have it is up in that really far. Like what we call them Eskimos, you know, up in that area. And he went back, and they were laughing and drunk. And he said, "Who came to you from Toronto?" They said, "No one." What's Toronto? Well. who told you about the laughing? He said, "Um, nobody. Well, how did this start happening? He said, well, you left us uh, the Bible. (laughs) In Acts chapter 2, they said, these men are not drunk, as you suppose. So we thought if they were accused of that, they must have looked like it. So we asked God. We want what they got. You know, the thing about revival is we're so f- afraid that we might be associated with somebody else's ministry that's a little bit different from ours that we want to differentiate ours from theirs. So, in the first great awakening, it was, I don't think it was a separate move of God from the great evangelical revival under Wis- Wesley and Whitfield in England. Uh, I think there's one great big move of God transcended the ocean in uh, the uh, 1858 uh, or the Second Great Awakening, uh, I, I believe that just wasn't, Cane Ridge was separate from what was happening in the universities. There's all one big move of God with both the worst of the places, which was that time Cane Ridge where it was at. It was called Rogue's Harbor because so many people had moved there that were fugitives from the east this was when Kentucky was the west part of the United States, and uh, th- th- they even had a vigilante group raise up uh, uh, that t- to fight the criminal element, and they lost the battle. But God wanted in a revival. But the other part of the revival was amongst uh, universities on the East Coast in the Second Great Awakening, and they at the time wanted to differentiate it. It was one great big move of God. The uh eighteen fifty eight prayer revival started in Hamilton Ontario and it went to new york city and and uh, after a while it's like one America was in a prayer meeting Well there was a great outpouring also in 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 the, in the uh, United kingdom today um, of of a move of God there's something like there was this connection between uh especially the united kingdom and and uh, the um, United States about revivals. We wanted to distinguish them. I think is one big move of God. Um, when you get to the uh, Pentecostal revival, you really see a lot of wanting to differentiate. You have um, in uh, 1901, you got Parham. In 1904, you have uh, Evan Roberts and Welsh, then the Welsh revival. In uh, 1905, you have an outbreak of revival in uh, India. And if I remember correctly, also in Santiago, Chile, into uh, what would be, later became the Hotebechi uh, Methodist Pentecostal Church. At that time, it was Methodist, and they get kicked out. Um, and then you had 1906 uh, Seymour, and 1907 you had the great Pyongyang revival in, in, in uh, North Korea. Uh, and and say so these were, they are differentiated. I don't think so. I think these are, this is one great big revival that's so much bigger than what we thought and got taken around the world. Now, sometimes there was a connection between what they heard in one place. For example, there was a strong connection between Azusa Street and uh, Evan Roberts in Wales. There's also a strong connection between Hoda Bechi Methodist, in Santiago, Chile, and what was happening in um, um, India, which they'd read about, which, by the way, some of these revivals... Uh, you've got significant leaders, but also you got insignificant people who are catalysts in it. For example, in the Hodebechi, a janitor came to the senior pastor who was a medical doctor as well as a pastor and was the general superintendent of the Methodist Church before they kicked him out. And, um, um, and this janitor came and said, I think you're supposed to call your most holy people to pray. And I forgot for so many days in a row. And he, he did it. He, he he believed the janitor was hearing from God. He did exactly what was happening. After they did it, the power of God fell, and they had a mighty, mighty outbreak of uh, of revival. Um, so moving up more into the 20th century, you have um, the, after the revival of Azusa Street, the next major revival in the Pentecostal denominations was um and, and and it's really funny because the people who were in it wanted to just differentiate. He said, you're confusing. These are not the same. But I, they are one big move of God, though there were differences. And so you have uh, Branham in 1946. The angel speaks to him. He begins his healing ministry that really does catapult uh, into the greatest he- revival of healing in Ameri- in world history since the uh, day of the apostles, I believe. And, and so that was 1946. In 1947, you have the Latter Rain Movement that broke out in Sask- Saskatchewan in the Sharon Orphanage. And uh, I met this guy. A matter of fact, the lecture I was going to give, I'm off on something else already. Um, <laughs> so I'll do this one after a while or another time. Uh, so I met this guy. He was 83 years old when I met him. And I was doing a meeting at uh, Melbourne, Florida. And it went, um, it broke out and went eight and a half months, and it would have gone longer, but one of the key leaders had fallen into secret sin, and because of shame, he shut it down. And it didn't, it wasn't discovered for almost uh, over a decade that his secret sin, but when it did, was discovered, it it uh, blew the church to smithereens, and, and, and. And that shouldn't surprise us. The enemy is strategic. He's got people praying against the church and trying to pray for the downfall of people who are in leaders. And there's a lot of witchcraft against us. And, and so that doesn't mean it wasn't God. It just meant in the, in the enemy got his hand in one man's life. And because of that, it actually caused the shutting down of that move of God. It could have gone on longer because the, this was actually the host pastor, um, not the one in leadership and. But anyway, um, so in that revival, I met this guy named Erskine Holt. And Erskine Holt was one of the first five people to come to Sharon Orphanage at the beginning of the latter rain movement. And um, um, he was foursquare, And this was now... That was 47. This was um, 95, so it's almost 50 years later. And he's 80 some odd years older and, uh, and he had just come from Vladivostok and was on his way to Argentina, and he's still traveling 180 days a year at 83 years old. I stayed in touch with him. He wanted me to do something. He called me. and said, why don't you come down? Let's do a meeting together. And he's, he's 90 at that time. And then I went to saw him in the hospital. He had uh, um Uh, second stroke and he was so bummed he said I don't get to go anywhere they won't let me go I am just stuck only place I get to preach now is Florida and Georgia and Mississippi and Alabama and South Carolina and North Carolina but I don't get to go anywhere and (laughs) because he traveled his whole life so he was talking to me and he said "Um, well you're confusing the two Um, because I call it the Uh, 48 Healing Revival, he said in 1947, it was a Latter Rain Movement. And our emphasis was about prophecy and it was healing, but it's all connected to local church. And the 48 Healing Revival is a different move of God. And by the way, I do disagree with him. I I think it was different, but it was still one great big move of God. And, And then, so he got 46, 47, 48 Healing Revival, 49 Puff Graham. When William Hurst sent out something to all of his reporters, "Puff Graham," and that's why Billy Graham was just picked up by all the media. And uh, he had just had his experience up in the uh, in the mountains. I'd been I'd actually stood in the very place where he had this visitation of God, where he had an experience after his conversion that was just really was powerful. That that um, actually was right before he was catapulted into his ministry. So I believe that was one great big move of God so when you get about 50 um, well you got the charismatic renewal and it went all over the world and uh, the basically it moved into the Jesus movement and um, and then you have in 1993 Rodney Howard Brown has this outpouring at Lakeland at the Carpenters Home Church and it it was uh, extremely powerful and uh, in '94, it was myself going to uh, Toronto. In '95, on um, Mother's Father's Day, Mother's Day was the vineyard thing in '80, in uh, I forget what it was. But anyway, in Father's Day, you have Steve Hill at um, Pensacola at Brownsville. Uh, and uh, that's in 2005, and in two th- uh, 1995, and in 1996, you have Steve Gray at Smithton. And about the same time, somewhere in there, you also have a revival breaking out all over America at evangelical colleges. So for me, it's not that what Rodney did was different from what I did and what I did was different from what Steve did and what Steve did and John did is different from what Steve Gray was doing. It's, again, one major move of God that was affecting um, actually all of the world uh, because people came from all the world and went back and it was spreading. I think it's important to see it that way. Otherwise, um, we're missing how great God is. Man, when I heard a year later after Toronto that the Pensacola opened up, I said, God, I know what you're doing. You're opening up a, water, you're opening up a watering hole that's more culturally re- relatable to southern Pentecostals. But I didn't think it was a different move. As a matter of fact, when I went there, uh, they still had the, the, the ministry guidelines with Toronto Vineyard printed on the top that, that they were using. And, and, and uh, Linda Cooley and um, Brenda Kil- Kilpatrick uh, had both gone to Toronto and been powerfully touched, though John himself didn't go. And it's interesting, at the time, John wanted to make a point of, I didn't go to Toronto, uh, kind of distancing. And, and, and I, I've also heard another one of the major leaders saying, well, I don't like what so-and-so evangelist is doing because I think it's you know, but it really was one major move of God, big revivals now that's one of the points I want to talk about is revivals are bigger than what we think they become world revivals, not all of them are world revivals uh that one was uh most of the ones I talked about was the Pentecostal one was world revival. actually, if you read some books book by um I think uh John. Let's see, was it John G. Lake? It was one of his books on prayer. He um, talks about, uh, no, it wasn't him. There's was D.L. Moody and another guy who, was, who had gone around the world and they had, had just had some amazing meetings uh, in Asia and I think in Australia and in around uh, 1902. And so you, you've got this holiness revival. When the holiness for people and the Pentecostal, they don't like, to, they don't like each other. Very well, and and there's nobody more resistant to Pentecostals than the Holiness, and the reason why they lost more of their churches to the Pentecostal move than any other denomination, so they pay they 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 suffered the greatest loss, and because of that, there was this animosity between Holiness and Pentecostals for many years, uh, because, well, another thing about revival, is usually the last move persecutes the next move, usually, the only group I know of that didn't do that. Uh, was um, the Latter Rain uh, movement. Matter of fact, I talked to this one guy. He said uh, he he was in his 80s, came to my church in St. Louis. I was pastoring a vineyard there. uh, I'd started, and he said, I've never missed a move of God. I've been at every one of them. I didn't miss any of them. I didn't miss the charismatic renewal. I didn't I didn't miss what was going on in the vineyard. I didn't miss uh, coming here. I've, I've not missed any of the moves since uh, 19, when God touched me in 1947. I, I said, well, how did you not miss them? He said, well, I look to see what God's doing with the young people. And and uh, that's a key. And once you have felt revival, like Jack Taylor walked into the Toronto and some of these other guys from, uh, he was Southern Beavis, some of the other guys in the other movements walked in and said, felt the atmosphere and said, yes, this is that. Because once you've been in that atmosphere, it's so pregnant with anticipation and expectation. It's almost electric. Um, uh, and faith is so high. It just has a feeling that, you, you know, it's, you You can't forget. So that was what I wanted to share just early in this part of the lecture was these great revivals I just talked to you about. In these different periods of time, they're. Sometimes there's just simultaneous breaking out, and sometimes what's going on in one is heard about in another, and the testimony creates hunger, and um, um, there is persecution. Um, as a matter of fact, one thing I want to point out is if you, if you had to ask, uh, what is the one gift that you don't see very much in Pentecostal churches, I'd tell you what it is. It's prophecy. Do you know that most Pentecostal churches has a void of prophecy in it? There are exceptions, but as a whole, there really is. Why? Because the Pentecostal denominations basically rejected light of rain. It's interesting, I was reading yesterday on the way up here about uh, Jonathan Edwards writing about, and and, and Wesley, both of two different revivals, Writing about, or not two, two different continents. Writing about, both of them saying, the reports were greatly exaggerated about our abuses. For example, if you mention Toronto to most people, they say, oh, that's where the dogs barked. Uh, the first thing they're going to say animal sounds. Now, I know they did happen. They even uh, they even happened here in Dallas. Because I've just, Pastor... Told me last night. He said, well, some of that happened in my church. Uh, but I, I, could, I could put on both hands out of, out of um, 21 years and 180 250 days of meetings a year and sometimes five and six sessions a, a day and usually morning, afternoon, and night. I can put on both hands the number of times I heard anybody make anything sound like an animal sound. That means it was not common. It wasn't normative. And it didn't last very long. But for most people, that's the first thing they think of. So the so the report was greatly exaggerated about what was happening. Uh, same thing was true of Edwards. Same thing was true of Wesley. This is common. People who are against the revival exaggerate the extremes. And so this guy is in my church, and he was... Actually, we, we were eating afterwards down in the basement... He got tears in his eyes. Almost 50 years after it happened, he said, I was at the meeting where the Assemblies of God voted uh, for uh, basically reject the Lateran movement. And basically, it was because they felt like prophecy is being abused. And and, and so this other guy said, There had to be some of it somewhere we wouldn't have been accused of it. But the reports were greatly exaggerated. And we never know, we, we almost, if there's a, it, I think that there's a move that's been, that's really been misrepresented the most, it is latter rain. Uh, I, I'm not a part of it, and, and there are some that went off to the deep end theologically, a, a, a portion, but there are so many that didn't. Some went into ultimate reconciliation, uh, 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 some. Uh, some obviously were wrong when they said we're going to, we are the manifest sons of God and We'll, we'll be alive when Jesus comes back. Well, none of them are alive, so they were wrong, you know. So there were mistakes that were made, but there were many others who did not go down those roads. But everybody gets lumped together, and a baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. Now, why do I think the baby got thrown out in the bathwater? And why am I 50, 50 years later or more than that, 60, 70 years later, defending a movement? Because it needs to be defended because there were some good things that happened. And many of the things that were rejected by the classical Pentecostal denominations came back into the church through the charismatic movement. And a lot of the teachings that was rejected are now becoming pretty normal in much of the charismatic uh, and some of the Pentecostal churches. Um, So, the guy who was used to break open Argentina that would later have hundreds of thousands of people Coming to the largest Colosseum in the nation, which is totally a move of God. I don't want to get into too much because I'll talk about it later. Most people don't know he was a Ladder Rain guy, Tommy Hicks. He was a Ladder guy, used to break open Argentina. Today we think of Argentina as the land of revival. It all goes back to Tommy Hicks. And before Tommy Hicks, five years before, they'd had Edward Miller, who was a latter Rain guy, doing a school down in in Argentina. Uh, they have a 14-year-old young man who has these visions. An angel uh, appears this guy, freaks him out. He's trying. He's screaming. He's running back. An angel comes in the presence. They just start weeping, shaking. <laughs> they go into visions. He's taken out of his body. He's going all over the world. He's seeing where revival's going to break out. He's He's basically downloading just stuff and they're writing it down as fast as they can about one day and and, and argentina at that time no protestant movement in over 100 years has had hardly any impact you can't get 500 people together and uh uh and and they're hearing that they're writing down the stadiums will be full great healings like we've never seen are going to happen these are young people teenagers in the early 20s most of them were teenagers And for days, they just weep and weep and weep, as this is is called. It happened in Bell City in 1949. There's a book called Cry For Me, Argentina that talks about all this. I actually, in uh, Resistencia, Argentina, that's where I was thinking of a while ago. um, I was in Resistencia, and I met the man who was in his 70s who was the boy that had the visions and stuff and, and got him 50 years later to talk about it for the first time. I reckon, I, wait a minute, I've read about you. And I got him, I talked him into it, to sharing uh, with the team that I had there about his experiences. So he was Latter Rain. That was all Latter Rain. There's this guy, I was in Elam. Elam denomination is one of the few denominations in the United States that are classical Pentecostal that did not reject Latter Rain. Elam accepted it, believed it wasn't heretical. So one time I was speaking at the Elam denomination and I met the, I, 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 I love to get stories. You can tell I love stories. And so I met the former president. I said, he was really gray headed and white beard and everything. And you don't have to be, you're not, you're not old just cause you get gray, but he was an older guy. I said, tell me the, one of your greatest stories. He said, okay. We prophesied out of a presbytery for this guy to go to Kenya. So because of the prophetic presbytery, he and his family moves to Kenya. He's been there for months. He's not led one person to the Lord. It is going terrible. And so he's very discouraged, and he's praying as he's walking the streets in Kenya, and he's praying, God, you prophesied me out of where I was living and. I'm here, my family's here, but God, nothing is happening. Lord, I feel like we've missed you. God, I'm discouraged. You have got to do something. And as he's praying, there's also a group of people with a whole crowd of people coming down the street carrying a casket on their shoulders. And the word he hears is go up and pray for the man in the casket. So he goes up, lays his hands on, gets him to stop, tells him what he felt like God said. He lays his hands on the casket and he prays for the man in the casket. And a a few moments later, you hear this. And they open it up and the guy's alive. And revival broke out immediately. Today, and and he said, today, there are 10,000 churches there that were birthed out of that revival that was birthed by a guy who was sent out by Latter Rain. Edwards, Jonathan Edwards said about Chauncey, his a critic that, um, he mentioned three things that the critics did wrong. Um, one of them was they only reported, they exaggerated report and they didn't report everything that was happening. They only talked about bad, never talked about the good. And they said, that's, that's not Right. Uh, secondly, they didn't, uh, use, they didn't use the Bible correctly. They only used text that would seem to support their rejection and ignored the text that seemed to support the revival. And um, I forgot what the third one was right now. But the point I want to make on it is the exaggerated uh, extremes and not, not acknowledging the good that was happening. And so I feel this is one of the things that's happened in the Great uh, Latter Rain Revival which emphasized prophecy, which emphasized God was restoring all the gifts to the church, which is not something new because the early Pentecostal movement believed that. They emphasized that God was restoring the fivefold ministry gifts. But I found places it looks like the earliest Pentecostals thought that as well. Uh, yeah, they used the word apostolic almost for everything. And... um how many of us have read a book that says by the Apostle Smith Wigglesworth or Apostle John G. Lake, you know? Um, so the, the heavenly choir, you know, singing and listening and hearing the Lord sing over them and hearing p- angels join in and singing. In St. Louis, there's a, a large, uh, large Latin church where a woman got up that didn't know how to play piano and just went to the piano keys and just started playing amazing under the anointing of the Spirit. Um, so I asked Erskine one time, I said, tell me, um, I'm one of the leaders of this present move of God. You were one of the leaders of, the, of, this, of this move of God that you were in. Is there anything you can tell me that would not make mistakes that you guys made? He said, well, what you hear were our mistakes. I mentioned, "Well, abuse of prophecy, and I named off two or three. See, I, some of that had to happen or we wouldn't have been accused of it. That wasn't typical. He said, that's what man said. I'll never forget this day. He said, that's what man said. That's why we were rejected by leaders and denominations. But do would you want to know what God said? I said, what are you talking about? He said, I was in a meeting one time where the Lord just spoke prophetically through someone and said, I am getting ready to lift off of this move. And I'm not going to come back in this kind of power again in a number of years which was the exact number of years, the fulfillment of the beginning of the charismatic movement. And he said, and I'm going to do it for this reason. And he said, it had nothing to do with any of the accusations and concerns of humans. God's concern was not the abuse of prophecy, not that he's for the abuse of prophecy, but he you know, said that wasn't the big issue for him. It, it, it wasn't the talking about the restoration of the fivefold offices. None of that. What it was for God, he said, I was restoring the apostles and prophets and all these gifts, office gifts for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. But you guys have begun focused on who's an apostle and who's a prophet. And instead of equipping the saints for the work of ministry and because you have not been equipping the saints for this reason, I'm lifting my spirit. So Erskine looked at me, and at that time, we'd only been there, for, only been going for about uh, less than a month, and we'd trained 3,000 people from T- Peter Lord's Church, Baptist Church at Titusville, Florida, to the Vero Beach Assembly God, and to the Melbourne Tabernacle and all, the, you know, all that whole area. We'd already trained 3,000 people in, in, in how to pray for the sick and witness and stuff. And he said, he looked me in the eye and said, Randy, never stop equipping the saints. So this is a huge thing. Priesthood of believers, a huge thing. We want to make it where everybody can pray for themselves and get delivered. But we don't want to preach to the believer that we can actually be priests and bring in, you know, being on blessing the other people and, and being able to uh matter of fact, one um Robert, no, that's not the right word. Um, he's an English guy. He wrote a book on the prophethood of believers. Um, Roger. Stromstad or something like that. You I got mean, know I'm talking about, Roger. But anyway, he, he, he said, really, this is what the new covenant was all about, that we'd, all, we'd become or that what Moses said, would that all of God's people be prophets, that we could hear and we could speak on behalf of God. We could hear and speak and, and accomplish things because the power gifts are related to revelatory gifts. And when we believe, and especially as, as Dr. Ruthven had taught us, faith in the New Testament and in the Old Testament Is begins with hearing God and obeying what you hear and persevering in the conflict that comes because of your obedience. That's the biblical understanding of faith. Now, if that's the biblical understanding of faith is based upon hearing God, what does it do to biblical faith to come up with a doctrine that says we no longer can hear God speak other than through Scripture? For example, how would I have known... To resign my church that I spent 16 years at, started, it, built it, how would I have known to resign in 2001, move to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania? It's not in the Bible. I've looked. There's nothing there says tell Randy Clark in 2001 he needs to resign and move to Harrisburg. But God loves. Faith and without faith, it's impossible to please God. So, we could also say God is pleased by faith, and God likes to create situations where we can respond in faith, and He does so by speaking. But if you don't believe He speaks other than through Scripture, then there's that really puts God in a straitjacket. There's so much that He that Scripture cannot specifically speak to us about that the Holy Spirit can. And those principles are actually in the scripture, in the scripture itself that says that we ought to have these types of uh, expectations and understanding of faith. So I want to back up. And tell you, I want to show you another thing about revival to avoid or for discernment. Um, scripture says, behold, I knew a, a new thing. Revivals has similarity to past revivals, and they have differences, uniquenesses, and it's almost always the unique new thing that's happening that causes many people to reject it, causes it to be spoken ill of, and causes even the last move sometimes to not believe this is God, and when we go back just in in the United States uh you have let's start with Methodism uh let's go back farther let's start with Anglicanism that's where we want to start at you, just a kind of a, a picture so Wesley's an Anglican. Wesley does not want to start a new denomination. Wesley does not want to start Methodist. As a matter of fact, Methodist was a derogatory term. It was meant because they are so methodical in the way they did discipleship and so methodical in their discipline that they were called Methodist because of their method. They're so methodical in discipleship between the class and the societies and things. And so um, there's a move of God. And Wesley's the key leader. Whitfield is another. Whitfield was a Calvinist Methodist. And uh, Wesley was an Arminian Methodist. And um, so the bishops, many of the bishops at Anglican Church say, we don't believe that what God is doing with Wesley and Whitfield is really God. We don't believe that this is really a move of God. We believe that this is enthusiasm. I I bought a book recently. It says, uh, Roman papist and... Methodist enthusiast, the parallels, something like that. And so they were, at, at, at when, well, this is a time of great ante, uh, 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 quarrel between Protestants and, and Catholics. And and the, and the guy that's writing it says, these, Catholic, these um, Methodists are like Catholics, they, and they, they believe in these experiences and these visions and dreams and all this type of stuff, and it's nothing more than enthusiasm. And it's really meant to be negative. Because um, because the, the, the Calvinists at the time they didn't they didn't believe in, in these types of things happening, though as Jack Deere points out in his book "Surprised by the Voice of God" and John um, Knox and the early Calvinists in the, the Scottish revival, they had prophecy and they did hear from God and it's actually it was in their writings. But then it was written out you know they they deleted that part because it didn't fit their doctrine well anyway so we've got the anglican church and he got bishops locking the doors to john wesley he can't even get he's told don't open your doors up to wesley because we don't think he's of god and uh part of the problem the reason why they didn't think they they accused him of having some type of powder up his sleeve so that when he lifted his hand like that he would push the powder out of the people's faces and cause them to fall down Whitfield and Wesley, sometimes people were so against them, people would climb up into trees and if they walked underneath the tree, they'd urinate on them. They thought, because they thought these were counterfeit revival leaders at the time. And so, the Anglican church won't recognize, and and what, we- what Wesley wanted was he wanted to renew the church. He didn't want to split the church, he wanted to renew the church. And most of the splits are caused by the rejection of the ones that the renewalists are trying to revive instead of reviving that they end up getting often kicked out. And, and so you have the birth of the Methodist denomination, which was in the 17th and eight—I mean, 18th and 19th century, the Pentecostal movement of the day. It was the most revival, most denomination in revival, Uh, was the Methodist. And one of the other lectures I I will give uh, in the second great awakening or in the first great awakening, the Methodists had the most phenomena, the most manifestations. The Presbyterians had the least and the Baptists had the middle as far as manifestations of the spirit, falling, laughing, shaking. And and some of the greatest uh, manifestations were called Methodist fits. So they were so associated with Methodists. And, and, and so you have the Methodists, Anglicans, and then you have the Methodists. So by the middle of the 19th century, there's been such a moving away from the original teachings of Wesley. Such a moving away from Wesleyan theology of second definite work, Wesleyan theology of experience, and moving much more into higher, more educated clergy, and more uh, influenced, particularly in the 1830s, by Darwinian writings and and scientism and and different things like that. That this move in the 1870s of revival was uh, uh, about healing, and healing became the most controversial subject from 1875 to 1900 in the United States and re- in the world, in religious world. And two people basically defeated it. And these two people were a Presbyterian, B.B. Warfield, and a Methodist, which I can't think of his name right now, but James something, I think it was. And he controlled the Methodist paper, which was the largest Christian paper. And he wrote in such a way that if you believed in healing, you were, should maybe not even be considered a Christian. You were an enthusiast, and enthusiasm was a, a bad word. In that time, it, that was seen a r- really good religion as very rational and reasonable and be aware of feeling and emotion. And so if you're emotionally aware, well, you're considered to be enthusiastic and you're written. And basically, he wrote about Both these guys wrote about it in such a way that it almost it, it, it made anyone who believed in healing be on the fringe. And yet the leaders of it were highly educated Calvinists, actually, who'd had experiences of healing. So they won the day the Warfield and this Methodist guy, they won the day. But in winning the day by having control of the media, and this is the thing, the ones who control the media seem to have won the day. And so fear, because of the writing, caused many to back away. But as a result, the more Wesleyans within Methodism felt like they were being ostracized and shut out of leadership. And so between 1875 and 1900, you had 25 new denominations form in the United States. That Almost all of them were splintering out of the Methodists who were rejecting the older ways, their revival, and uh, the things that they had been noted for. And was much more becoming much more liberal in their theology and the professors and and the and the schools. So you have all of these new called holiness denominations: the Nazarene, Anderson Church of God, uh, many, many more. There's 25 of them. And so by they're only about 25 years old, and some of them are much less than that. Then, out of the holiness denomination and their teaching, uh, uh, and by the way. One of the weird things about that I've never understood until I looked at it historically was why do Pentecostals believe in a system of interpretation eschatologically or in time interpretation that's dispensational when dispensationalism itself rejects the gifts are for today. How can the, how could the Pentecostals develop an eschatology that's basically dispensational when dispensationalism rejects Pentecostalism. My other question I had was, how how could denominations that don't believe that there can be um, revelation after the scripture that can be accepted, we must avoid it because it can give us a false doctrine or a new doctrine or something that's not biblical. How can they... Except a teaching that goes back to 1830 in Port Glasgow, Scotland with a young Scottish lass named Margaret MacDonald who has a vision, it's, it was called, other times I've looked at it, it's more like considerations that she's writing down and she shared it with uh, uh, John Darby and John Darby recruited uh, a A guy on the east Coast of the United States to draw a chart and then he influenced this other guy and together they trained c i schofield. How can people who reject modern day revelation yet believe in a doctrine of end times that's based on a modern day revelation i i I struggle sometimes seeing the consistency of these things so Pentecostal movement birthed out of the Wesleyan movement. See, uh, W.J. Seymour in Los Angeles came out to teach at a Wesleyan holiness church. And when he started teaching about the baptism of the Spirit, they locked him out. And so, the holiness people who pulled out of the Methodist now are birthing the Pentecostals. And the Pentecostals was trying to go after an original experience that, that had been c- kind of in the history of Methodism of powerful experiences after conversion. And there was rejection. One of the Pentecostal movements that was founded. It's called Foursquare. It's founded by a woman. Why was it founded by a woman? Because the assemblies of God wouldn't ordain her. Because she was a woman. So she starts her own denomination. She has a strong healing gift. Today there's I've spoken to some of the largest foursquare churches in Brazil. Thousands of members in, in them. 12,000 churches there. Almost half of them are pastored by women. So you have the Foursquare that didn't really get rejected by, but the, the, you might say the the woman pastor was kind of rejected in that day Amy Simple McPherson. So you got this Foursquare movement. Then all of a sudden, Jesus starts filling people and saving people on Haight-Ashbury and amongst the hippies. And you had the birth of what's called the Jesus Movement. And uh, one of the guys in the four square, Chuck Smith, pulled out of the four square, started something called Calvary Chapel. And so... You know, in the other meetings, you had problems. And we'll stop at Calvary Chapel for a moment, come back in a moment. So you go back, not only were there these splitting out in revival, almost every time they happened in revival. They happen as one is rejecting what God is doing, and as they're rejecting what God is doing, then another movement is birthed in the revival, and after a time, it seems like they begin to stir up with some people that we remember the way it used to be. They go after God. Others are not happy with that. They like it the way it is now, and usually when the apostolic leaders die, administrators get hired to clean things up, but administrators are not usually apostolic, and so it begins to die down. And so in the, uh, let's go back. First great awakening, one of the big things that was against it, it was, I told you yesterday, it wasn't called the great awakening. It was called the great noise or the great clamor because there was weeping and shouting and people fall and falling, they called it um, losing all strength. One time I went to, I'd asked the Lord, open up a door for me to work in higher education, theological education. And I got invited a few weeks later to speak at Regent. And I went in and and spurred the moment and just got on and I walked in the door and said, What's the name of this class? And he said, It's uh, spiritual leadership. I said, Well, I thought I ought to say something about leadership. I'm talking a leadership class. So I turned around and I rolled on the wall, three things that makes A History Maker, that was kind of had this song, I Want to Be a History Maker in This Land, was popular then. I said, three three keys to, and I'd never written this before, but it just came in a moment. Three keys to history makers. Number one, they have a powerful experience with the Holy Spirit. Two, they have a prophetic understanding of the purpose of that experience. uh, These two create a faith that all hell can't stop. That experience with the prophetic understanding of it call, gives them a kind of faith that no matter what the enemy throws, them, they, they, they go on through it. So anyway, I didn't know it, but there's this guy there who's anti-renewal. This was 1995, I think it was, and he's anti-renewal. I don't know it, and he's gunning for me. But all the class knows that he's against renewal. And so he raised his hand. He's on the front row, and I said, yes. He said, I have a question for you. How do you know this stuff is really God or not? Now, I don't know he's gunning for me. I don't know he's setting me up. But God knew it. So I thought it was just me. Later I found out it was God. I just looked at him and said, Ah, oh, really, it all just depends on your wife. And he looked at me and I said, Yeah, I mean, Edward's wife was the biggest duck in the puddle. I mean, she you could say, Jesus, she's walking by and she'd fall out. She'd be taken up with joy and have to be on her bed for hours. And so Jonathan Edwards' wife was... A real experience. She was really. She's kind of like a Carol, or not. She was like one of those right lightning rods. You, could, you know, she'd be one of the first ones to be touched and, and lose all strength and fall to the floor and be put to bed with joy and raptures and visions and and then BB Warfield's wife was an invalid. Now what I didn't know was this guy's wife was. Gung-ho for renewal, and it was a big conflict in their marriage because he's against it and she's for it. I knew nothing about that, but God did. That guy didn't say another word the rest of the class. I mean, he just, whoop, that was it. So so here's another thing about revival. There's a, a great classic, an, an academic work by University of Wisconsin called Cane uh, Ridge, America's Pentecost." And it it, it really is a great, um, a great work. And so um, in it, I learned that a lot of the leaders of the second great awakening had been young, either teenagers or in their 20s in the first great awakening. And so when it comes time for the second great awakening, these people who were teenagers or early twenties in the first great awakening, but they had touched and tasted of what revival was about. They were the leaders of the second great awakening. And, and, and there were, there had been this log cabin up in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, just North of Philadelphia, where they were being trained. And then it'd go down through the Appalachian mountains into, in, into the um, Tennessee. I mean, in Kentucky, West Pennsylvania, all, all the way through there. Um, so in the second Great Awakening, it started in universities uh, and it ended up in the high water point was Cane Ridge. How many of you ever heard of Cane Ridge? How many of you know very much about Cane Ridge? So Cane Ridge is a great revival, but a lot of people don't know much about it. Here's something I didn't know about it. Cane Ridge revival started with the Presbyterians. Here's the second thing I didn't know about it. It was connected to a great revival that had happened years before under the ministry of Whitfield in Cambuslang Scotland and in Cambuslang the presbyterians they'd do it was one once a year this great uh communion service and for a week getting ready for it there'd be worship and they'd be gathering and they and the, the night before it'd start people would be, be forced to be looking examining their lives because they're going to take communion and since they were uh communion was a big thing in the catholic church the main thing is the mass you know it's the it's the gospel on the, interactive gospel, taste, touch, taste, smell. You know, he's not just hearing it but seeing it. And um, and I I mean that to say this, that what the sermon is to a Protestant, the Mass is to a Catholic. and And if you do have communion every week, no matter what you preach, you will have preached the heart of the gospel when you consecrate the Lord's elements of the Lord's Supper. You're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna preach no matter what else you do. You're going that's gonna be. And Wesley used communion evangelistically, and so did I. <laughs> You know, this is not our server. This is the Lord's server. This is not the Catholic server. Not the Baptist server. This is the Lord's supper. If you're here today, we invite you to take communion with us. And I do, um, bless the elements right after the first song, call everybody together. And I'd say, and if there's any reason why you cannot take communion because you're out of relationship, out of communion with God, or you've got some sin that's in the way, I, I invite you to come to the altars, confess that sin, get right with God so you can take communion with us today. And as every week, examine your hearts. You know, this is not only to be forgiven, this is to get greater grace, to live more holy during the next week. And anyway, so, uh, where where was I at? With chase, shouldn't have chased that last rabbit. Oh, Boom. Cane Ridge. Kane Ridge. Kane. Canvas Ridge. Campus Canvas I'm at Lang. So, the night before, um, they're going to have this meeting as they're going to examine themselves. And Whitfield comes and he preaches. And... And as we are preparing to take communion, and all night long you still hear people—twenty thousand people—weeping, wailing, screaming. They—they'd fallen to the ground all over the place, and I—and there was f- scores of books that was written about it, and it was really controversial. But those who were touched remained faithful. So this became something that was known in the Presbyterians, and they're getting ready to have it in in. Uh, uh, what was the name, Red River at this place and Barton Stone, some of the founders of the Restoration Movement were, were part of this. And so as they're taking, getting ready to take communion, the Holy Spirit falls again. Which by the way, in the Moravian Movement, they're getting ready to take communion at midnight when the Holy Spirit fell and that prayer meeting that they had just started went 100 years, 24-7. And a great revival of, of uh, not just evangelism but missions was born out of revival that was born. The Spirit fell when they were taking the Lord's Supper. We talk about Wesley and Whitfield, but we, and we know about Aldersgate, but Fetter's Lane was where they were taking communion at three o'clock in the morning, and God unzipped heaven. And the Holy Spirit fell upon them. About 30 of them. They were fell to the ground. They got up and they shook England. So the Cain Ridge Revival, oddly enough, happened in communions, sir, Just like Camus Lang had done. That's why it's called America's Pentecost. It was the high water mark. Sometimes you could see as many as a 500 people at one time just falling as if a battery of 1,000 guns had opened up upon them. Shrieks and Cries would rend the heavens. It was the first time they talked about dogs barking. Was it Cane Ridge? Sounds like dogs barking. But other people say it wasn't really dogs barking. It what it was, they taught it tree and the devil. Some of them said that because the manifestations had been so strong that they were weakened in their body, they'd put their hands up against a tree and the gasping for air. Ah, 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 ah was mistaken for barking. Well, it's really the exhaustion of the, what they just experienced under the power. That, that's one of the theories uh, about it. So, in the second great awakening, after it's over, it's 1800, after it's over, in the next four years, the number of Christ, the number of people who were active members of the Presbyterian Church, which had the least manifestations, doubled. And the number of members in the Baptist Church tripled. And the number of members in the Methodist Church quadrupled. Now, there's a direct correlation between the amount of manifestation, which I think is direct correlation to the degree of power that people were being touched with, to the growth of those denominations. There was something new in the second grade awakening. It wasn't in the first grade awakening. And that were what we call the Methodist fits. It was more than falling to the ground. Um, it, it, people would be taken with them. Saint and sinner alike. I mean, it just wasn't the people in the church. It could be unsaved also, as well as Christians, taken with them. And Vincent Simon told me about this. He said that when they would start jerking, the women's, at that, that time, they wore a style. They wore hats, and they had feathers in the hat, and they'd have long hair, and it would be braided under the hat. This was the style of the day and when the women would be taken with these holy jerks as men as well as women when the women it first thing to go the hat would go off and then the combs it's got the hair all woven in there and braided then the combs would come out and then the hair would let go and then as they're jerking like that their hair would snap like a wagon whip it's called the methodist fits like in the great revival in northern France, northwest France, in the 1600s, when children prophesied in high French who couldn't speak French. They were very poor and uneducated. They couldn't speak high French. They were prophesying high French. I've been in a museum where that's at, but then it was corrupted later by political and theological things and the purity that was corrupted and caused major problems, actually. In the Cane Ridge Revival, we had little kids preaching, talking about things they haven't read about, taken up by the Holy Spirit. This was it happened quite a bit. One guy, he was not, and by the way, 20 some thousand people, there's only 80,000 people living in the state of Kentucky, and 20,000 come to the meeting. And there's no PA systems or anything. So, what sounds to us like it'd be. Um, out of order or confusing, you just have to understand people can't hear beyond the normal voice range. So if you've got 20,000 people there, you could have multiple people preaching around this great area on some from wagons, some from trees, stumps and stuff. And they're all preaching, but it's not confusing because all you have to do is just get far enough away that you can't hear that guy. And you start your own. And that was going on. And some of the great leaders, one of them, are Peter Cartwright, who became one of, the great, one of the most famous Methodist circuit riders of all time, came under conviction in that meeting and a few weeks later was saved in another camp meeting. Now, one of the things that happened in Cane Ridge was this guy came and we, we'd question today, would we believe this is God or not? So this guy, he's come, and not everybody there's there to worship God. A lot of them are just sightseers. A lot of them just came to watch what seems to them to be weirdness. And there's vendors. You've got 20,000 people. You've got people selling stuff. You know, you've got vendors. And so out around the periphery, it's kind of a carnival atmosphere. People are camped around and everything, but there in the heart of it is where the God is moving. And so this one guy, he came, and he's uh, not a Christian. And he's a ruffian. And I uh, remember this is where the militia, the, the vigilante army was raised up to try to drive the, the criminal element out and they lost the, the battle. And so it's, it's this really a rough place. It's actually called Rogue's Harbor. And, uh, and this is where God would make the great revival. And so this guy there, he's got moonshine and he's drinking his moonshine and he's mocking what God's doing. And as he begins, to, as he's mocking him, the power of God came on him. And he's taken with the jerks. And he starts jerking. And the more he's, he's getting angry, and he starts cursing, a vile, blue streak of curse words. And he starts jerking more. And finally, the it jerks so hard, the bottle of moonshine flew out of his hand, hit a rock, and he lost his liquor. Well, that just made him so angry. He's really cursing God now. And the jerks get stronger until... His neck snaps and he falls dead. Now, what would we think? Oh, Hank Hanegraaff would and John MacArthur would have a great day with that. <laughs> Definitely saying, well, that, can't, that, that can't, can't, can't be God. What you can get away with when it's not revival, what you can do in the outer camp can kill you in the Holy of Holies. Peter Cartwright tells after he started his ministry, uh, he was, went to preach and went to share the gospel with this guy. And he's cursing very loudly. He says, as I mo- left his house, as I'm going around the corner of the log cabin, the guy still cursed me. The jerks took him until his neck snapped and he fell dead. Remember Acts 19 and fear seized them and the name of Jesus was held in high honor. It was estimated that 50% of all Christians in Kentucky were taken by these manifestations in the next few years. And up to one half of the Christians in the whole South had some type of the way called a motor manifestations from the, the crunchers was just the crunchers, just mild jerks. Put the crunchers on steroids and you get the Methodist fits. (laughs) Our country is replete with often the church missing revivals because there's something they don't like. We didn't like losing all strength. Under the Methodists, it would be called swooning. Under the Pentecostals, it was called slain the spirits. Slain the spirit. And with the meth, uh, Catholics, it became resting in the spirit. I like that one the best, matter. You know, it's, it's much. Well, it's not nicer, but it, that's just for me. I'm, mean, You know, I'm, especially if you're soaking. Resting the spirit sounds pretty good. Um, then at the beginning of the Pentecostal movement, and by the way, in this Cainridge Revival, Second Great Awakening, in the University of Georgia, some young students went out to where the preaching was at at the fairgrounds, and they were taken up by the Spirit, fell out in the Holy Spirit, and fell on in, into the haystack, and spoken tongues. So the first time tongues is mentioned in the United States, it's not Parham's not Parm's folly, with with parm. it's actually the Second Great Awakening. But they made no connection between tongues and the baptism of the Holy Spirit at that time. It'd be a hundred years later before that. Uh, connection uh, would be drawn, with which F. F. Bosworth and W. J. Seymour and, and many of the early Pentecostals uh, uh, themselves disagreed over, and even more room for disagreement on that today amongst present Pentecostal scholars. So you, you then, and then people didn't believe as God because of tongues; they didn't like it. That's a new thing. It's what novels what drew the attention. That's why it caused so much rejection. But it really, in my opinion, the success and genius of the Pentecostal revival, it was not tongues. Though they would think it is, probably, and say so. I don't think so. I think it was a new theology. Because unlike anything that had happened heretofore, the Pentecostal movement did believe that that God was restoring the gifts of the Holy Spirit to the church. It wasn't just about tongues. It was about the gift of healing, the gift of prophecy, the gifts. The gifts were being restored. And a passageway into those gifts was through the experience of the baptism of the Spirit. It was, it was, so it wasn't just because the Methodists and others before had believed in uh, a baptism of the Spirit, a filling of the Spirit, a, or being overwhelmed by the Spirit, whatever you want to call it. They believed in that. But what was unique for the Pentecostals was that. Not, and, and, and by the way, is even different from the faith cure movement, 1875, 1900, because they believed in healing. But it was like word of faith today is healing based in the promises of God and in the provision of God at the cross. And by faith in the promises, healing comes. Word, Word of faith is very closely connected to the faith cure teaching, 1875-1900. But with Pentecostalism, which adopted a lot of that language, they also went beyond it. They said, God is not only going to, uh, is, is doing this healing, but he's restoring gifts of healing. And there will be people who have gifts of healing. He's restoring prophecies, restoring prophets, he's restoring healers, he's restoring these gifts He's restoring. And 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 one of the things that caused people to believe that a great revival was coming was eschatology, study of last things. Um, and, and if you think I'm rambling, I am because I don't have any notes and I'm just, you know. I'm, but I hopefully it all tying together somehow and making some sense. But even Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Baptist. Preacher of England who was living in the time of visitation, a time of revival. In 1857, he gave this prophecy. I can't, uh, I have it written down, but I don't have it to quote right now. But basically, it said like this I believe that there were, we are very close to seeing a move of God and a work of the Holy Spirit like the church has not seen since the apostolic days. Now, that's 1857. 1859, they have a great revival that broke out um, in part of the uh, English Isles um, in 1859. And then by 1900, you do have the birthing of the Pentecostal movement. But why did these guys at this time in the late 19th century, why did they believe a great revival was about to happen? Is eschatology. There was a... There was a Frenchman, and he wrote a book about the end times. And uh, the Napoleonic Wars had been going on. The Pope had been driven from Rome. The um, uh, A prostitute had been placed in Notre Dame Cathedral uh, as a goddess of wisdom. Uh, they changed the days of the, of the uh, calendar, and, and reason now reigns, and And, and, and they thought surely with this prostitute in Notre Dame university, this must be the abomination that makes desolate spoken of by Daniel and also Matthew 24. And so if this has happened, then this must be the generation that's going to come that Jesus is going to come back with Sophie count 40 years from that, then it's going to be close. Jesus is coming anytime. It was that eschatological viewpoint that caused people, because they did play, even the Puritans believed that God is going, the kingdom of God is going to advance through revivals, and so God is always going to be moving through revivals, but at the end End of time, there will be the blessed hope is going to be the kingdom of God. Is, is kind of like po- uh, even J.R. Graves, of great Southern Baptist who founded Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, was not a premillennialist, he was a postmillennialist. And premillennialism did not take hold in the United States until after the Civil War. It took the great civil war with the great hundreds of thousands of men that died in the inhumanity that the North and South did to each other that 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 shot a hole in the head of the optimism that was in the American psychic and caused us to believe that things are getting worse now. And, and in 1830 is when the first pre-trib rapture theory ever came out. was eighteen. You can't find it prior to 1830. And so you have a switching from post-millennialism, which was teaching that the kingdom is now advancing, the church is expanding. And, um, but at the very end, God is going to restore all the gifts and offices that was in the early church in a great final end-time revival. Now that's switched, and what becomes the most popular view in America, which never has been the most popular view in Europe and many other places, was the pre-trib, premillennial view of second coming, which basically says it's not going to get better, it's going to get worse. And before Jesus comes, the last church is Laodicea, that's the church that's lukewarm. So... If you believe in this view of eschatology, you will not expect a great out last day's revival. You will expect the opposite. And so if you hear about it, it's going to be hard for you to get excited about a last day's revival if you're expecting, well, I just want Jesus to come and rescue us. And then once he takes the church out, then 144,000 Jews is going to do more without the Holy Spirit than the church could do with it. It's kind of the eschatology. Um I'm being a little facetious there, but, but what wasn't known was the guy, or John Irving, no, not John Darby, Irving, Irving, Edward Irving, Edward Irving, the founder of the Apostolic Catholic Church, which was the first time in England that tongues has been restored in prophecy and things, and he got defrocked and because of his canonic uh, view of, of Jesus, uh, believing in a strong, emptying, um, uh, and he died in not long after that, and kind of shame, it put a lot of fear in our hearts of many people, but uh, anyway, he believed that he was interpreting a book that went along with uh, Margaret McDonald's experience that became part of the C.I. Schofield Bible, but he also found this book, and he thought it was written by a converted Jew but it was a pseudonym and the guy really wasn't converted to he was a catholic priest who was aware of of some of the eschatology so negative toward catholicism and it went along with this preacher rapture things came together at the same time so how did it, how then did this come become a part of pentecostalism and evangelicalism in america in these holiness meetings before the holiness denomination started, they had these big meetings and there'd be scores of thousands would come and Moody was there. And and this is where um, E.W. Kenyon was heavily influenced. And even Pentecostal, the dictionary of charismatic Pentecostal movements, misunderstand Kenyon because even Pentecostals say he was influenced by new thought, which is not true. Joe McIntyre's book on Kenyon, E.W. Kenyon, The Man and His Message, The True Story, he's a friend of mine. McIntyre was given Kenyon's personal diary of his life. And from that personal diary, he totally proves from Kenyon's diary that the theory that McConnell, who wrote the book Another Gospel, who was so against Kenyon, who's basically saying Kenyon was influenced by New Thought and transcendental, Transcendentalism and some of the uh, crazy religions that was coming out of New England in rejection of Calvinism uh, in the 1800s. But the truth is, Kenyon is not influenced by them. When he's in, in the Emerson College, which is the hotbed of, of uh, this type of teaching, he was only there one semester while he's backslidden. And the teacher trying, uh, a New Age teacher wasn't even teaching it yet. And then Kenyon gets rededicated in A.J. Gordon's church. He's influenced more. in, in, in uh, Kenyon quotes A.J. Gordon, his famous Baptist preacher, more than anybody. And his influence on the um, uh, in assemblies of God. Kenyon has a profound influence upon the assemblies of God because the Methodist holiness, no, I said that wrong, the Wesleyan Pentecostals believed in a second definite work of grace of sanctification prior to baptism of Spirit. So Kenyon spends all night talking to Durham from Chicago. He goes out to the Assemblies of God meeting, and he introduces what's called a new teaching called the Finnish work. Now, Finnish Durham got that from Kenyon, who got it from a CMA guy. Christian Missionary Alliance, whose name skips my name right now, but it's George something. And as they're talking about it, then that comes into the assemblies of God and they reject three-stage Pentecostalism and now they have salvation, sanctification as a process, baptism of the Spirit, and everything's been finished at the cross. Um, Kenyon was influenced by these famous... F. B. Myers, all these holiness Keswick guys. By the way, Kenyon never was; he didn't never identified himself as Pentecostal. He's a Free Will Baptist. So, in this milieu of what's going on, you have this healing teaching at the holiness meetings, and the new teaching about the end of time, the pre-trib rapture. So, in these holiness meetings, you got two new teachings that's coming: pre-trib rapture. Healing. It became became so controversial that at the end they said no longer can anything be taught in these holiness meetings about healing or pre-trib rapture, which was the new teaching and went against what the church in America believed, which is post-millennialism at the time. That's how pre-trib rapture and healing became a part of the Pentecostal denominations that were born out of that holiness meeting. And why today, in many of the the doctrines, the pre-trib rapture became so powerful because that was what was caught in that milieu of what was being taught right before they uh, broke away. Now, I I haven't forgot where I was at with um, Calvary Chapel. I'm just going back and showing you. People rejected things for different reasons. So when you get... To tongues, that was a reason. When you get to the latter rain, it's prophecy is the main thing that are rejected from. Which brings me back to, that's why the assemblies of God today who rejected the strongest is one of the hardest places that you will ever find prophecy. And there's still position papers to this day against laying on of hands, against doctrine of impartation. Against prophecy there are still position papers in the movement and even though they're Pentecostal there was such a reaction to that they lost what they reacted to and they're just it basically almost doesn't exist in the movements so when you get to the four square and you get to Chuck Smith The problem isn't a new doctrine. The problem is the people group. Because now we got long-haired guys. People living, have been living in community. We've got flower children looking for peace in the wrong places. You know, all you need is love. All you need is love. Well... They had the right idea. they just looking in the wrong place. And God all of a sudden decides to do a people movement and the Jesus movement starts. Much of the Church of America rejected it. And those of us who were in the Jesus movement, most of us were cutting our teeth on S- Salem Curbin, the Guide to Survival, Hal Lindsey's, Late Great Planet Earth. That was what the Jesus people were reading. And because some of them thought Jesus was coming back so soon, they didn't go to college. And then we wonder why isn't the church influencing more people? So we didn't think this could be God because he's touching the wrong people group. this charismatic revival 10 years before that that couldn't be god because i told you earlier because we got people doing things we know god would never have people do that you can't you can't be sanctified and drink you want a culture shock go to europe <laughs> go minister in Pentecostal denominations. I recently, I was in a Pentecostal denomination. I don't mean, tell you what country, but I was in a Pentecostal denomination ministering, and they honored the apostle of the whole movement, and they gave him two great, nice, big bottles of very expensive wine. <laughs> I'm thinking, we have come a long way that <laughs> this would happen. You know, I mean, th- this is Pentecostal. Now, there still are some Pentecostal denominations and holies that, that, that are, are teetotalers. But in Europe, it's hard to find. It's it, it, We choose our sins. It's so much easier to be a little Pharisee if you've got a rule book that you can say, well, I don't do these things than it is to say that my heart is ravished with love for God and the kingdom of God. One of the things I had learned, I grew up out of a Baptist church. We were teetoters, And it um, always bothered me about it, how much grape juice do you have to drink before you've had too much grape juice to know that you're, this grape juice isn't as good as the other grape juice in John chapter 2. I never could make. That was really hard to understand from a Baptist position. Um, but anyway, again, I'm chasing a rabbit here. Got to get back on here. Twenty, twenty 20 minutes. So when you get, the, the, get to Calvary Chapel, and all of a sudden, you have another split. It's over whether or not the stuff should be done in front of people or behind the curtain in the back room. And so Chuck Smith and John Wimber split. Tragically, in my opinion, tragically, it was tragic even with the split, that split, but even more tragically, They could come back together now, and it wouldn't make any difference because everything's behind the back rooms, even in the vineyard. And then you have Toronto. And the issue is not, this is not God. John Wimber and the vineyard never said what was going on in Toronto was not a move of God. They said, we don't like the way it's being pastored, which I thought, John Arnott did a great job of pastoring, considering for a season, his own people couldn't get into his own meetings because by the time they got off work, the church was already lying out there from Europe. And your own people can't get in your own meeting. And on Sunday morning, you can't even get to your own church. How do you grow a church and not kill your church because of revival? He did a great job. I, I think he did a really great job. The only thing I would have done different I wouldn't have talked so much. I wouldn't have been so excited about the animal sounds. I personally would have (laughs) just kind of let that go, not talked about it so much. But anyway, you know, overall, I give him an A, not 100, 95. Truly, it really, really, really is difficult to pastor in a revival because a lot of stuff that's starting to happen, you don't know what that is. Because you've never seen it before. And you got to wait and find out. It's tricky. And in all fairness to John, I love John, was he had got concerned about a revival broke out earlier at his church in Stratford, Ontario, and tried to bring correction too quickly, and it killed the revival. And he promised God if he ever came again, he would be slow to put his hand to bring correction. And you got to know that to know what was some of the motivation behind John. And so we have another split, but almost every time that there's a split over phenomena, the group that rejected and was negative, what they rejected, it's like the people in that group go way past the intentionality of original leaders And there's a greater fear, and it shuts down the move of the Holy Spirit. My desire is that I don't attack the next thing God does. I'd like to be like the latter rain guys that can say in my 80s, I didn't miss anything. I never spoke against the next move of God wrongly. I want to be able to sense and recognize it and bless it. And not cut it down. Revival. I want to go back to one other thing in my last 15 minutes. Remember we talked about how rain was probably the most rejected move within Pentecostalism. It's probably, I do think, was the most rejected by the most people. Almost everything that was rejected has come back into the church. The great revival in Argentina... Was led by Latter Rain. Great revival in Kenya was led by a Latter Rain. One of the greatest leaders today in to the Chinese people is Dennis Balcom, and I've been with Dennis. I've been I interviewed the uh, went with um, a Chinese guy Chen, and uh, from the L.A. area, we went to China, and I met the seven leaders. Of one of the largest underground church movements in China. And all of them, independent of each other, I interviewed them in different places, told me 25 million people have come to the Lord from the starting of us seven. It covenanted together to reach China. We have 25 million people that have come to the Lord through the people we've reached, with people they reach, with people they reach. And this was in the 90s, and I said, You know, in America right now, we're having trouble over prophets and apostles. So What do you guys call each other? He said, Brother. <laughs> now, how they they do not use the term apostle, but you better believe the people in those movements, they know who these guys are, and they carry great weight. You know, there's five guys and two of them. All of them been in prison. Some of them have raised the dead. Some of them have been beaten. Many of them have been in prison more than once. And I talked to them. This is what they said. 80% of our 25 million came, this was 19 around, in the in the 90s probably around 95, 96, somewhere in there, 97. They said 80% of the 25 million that come to the Lord have done so since 1988. So I get curious. I said, oh, well, tell me, what happened in 1988? Now, I would not have used this language. This is not my language. This is not my theology, not my language, but I knew what they meant. Dennis Balcom came and brought us the Holy Spirit. And Dennis has got pictures of them falling and laughing as the spirit of God fell in their midst, but they don't honor each other so much for you know how raising the dead or anything like that. What they honor the most is you spent time in prison for your faith. Dennis Balcom. Violet Kiteley's son, Paul Kiteley, told me, he said, Randy Dennis will never tell you this, but there's another 60 million being influenced by his ministry. And I said, Well, what is his ministry? How did he do this? Dennis was sent out by Sister Kiteley, whose husband was killed in the Lucian Islands by a Japanese attack plane, while she's carrying her son. And she carries her son, and she's one of the first persons to go to share an orphanage to the outpouring of the latter rain. And she became one of the leaders. My friend Lance Walno says she prophesies the hair go up on the back of your neck. Moving and prophesying. So Dennis was at Assemblies of God College in the L.A. area, and there's one of the latter rain churches is down there. And the teacher said, guys, these are all young men. You do not do this to young men. He'd been better off just to say nothing. He said, listen, there's a false revival going over here in this church, and we do not want to see any of you. We advise, do not go. Do not go. Do not go to that meeting. Well, they got to go. Got to go see. You know, you're 19 years old, 18. You got to go see what it is. You know, we've been told we shouldn't do it. We got to go. So there's a big crowd, and Dennis is sitting there, and they call him out. They don't know who he is, and Dennis has felt called to go to China since he was a teenager. He's now in Bible college, and uh, uh, they call him out, and he start he start prophesying over him. And he said, "Well, we see you. Uh, we we it gets oh it's something to do with Asian." He said, "Oh, that's good. That's good. You're in the right area." So <laughs> yeah, I see you're gonna be a missionary. Yeah, yeah, of course. I yeah, yeah. Come on, come on. He's thinking. He said, "Come on, come on. Give me more. You're getting close." And he said. It, it's, it's going to be the Chinese. Well, there's, you know, it's a great Chinese dispersion all over Asia, Chinese. He said, no, you're going to be one of the first Westerners to become a missionary to China. And he said, yes. Now, wow. <laughs> that's, a, that's a man's man call there. Wow. Can I get that on my phone? <laughs> <laughs> How many of you guys are do, do, do you want to finish that? Do, do, do. Anyway, so I interviewed Dennis about prophecy. And I want to say this I think some of the most wisest people you could talk to today about prophecy would be that stream of the latter rain that didn't go off into universalism, uh, didn't go off in the manifest sons of God, uh, but, th- but the group that stayed true to orthodoxy. Why? Because for the last 50 years, they're the only Pente- pretty much few of the Pentecostals that's allowed prophecy, that's perfected it, that's learned how to, the do's and don'ts, that's learned wisdom about it. And uh, I learned a lot from them. So Dennis was in my office, and this is what he said. He said, Randy, we should never allow prophecy to direct us unless it confirms the inner witness in our hearts. There's, and unlike in the charismatic movement, everybody's giving everybody a prophetic word. In the latter rain, you couldn't prophesy the prophetic presbytery. You couldn't prophesy to somebody unless their pastor was there. And they would say, your pastor is to weigh everything we say. Is to be a safety, more or less, to confirm or to correct, or and there's a lot of wisdom in that. So Dennis Balcom was was basically confirmed his calling. He said, "It, it, you see, I wasn't led by that. That confirmed what I already had in my heart. It gave me faith that what I felt like God was leading me. It now had been confirmed by others. So if you get something." And it doesn't bear witness to what's in your heart. You don't go with it. So it's, I think that's extreme wisdom. So now back to ending this thing up. Toronto was rejected because of manifestations. Most, all of them except the animal sounds were not new. They have a history that goes back for hundreds of years. The falling can go back into the Middle Ages. I've read from in Catholic. Matter of fact, some of the stuff that my friends who were prophets talked about, I couldn't find anything in Protestant history. I had to go into Catholic history to find parallels to what they were talking about of some of the great saints of God who were mightily used of God in the Catholic Church uh, where they too had these types of -of out-of-body experiences and things. Uh, that some of my prophet friends were talking about Um Mesa, the papal preacher uh writes in one of his books called uh, I believe it's come kind of like um I don't know if it's holy inebriation, I think, but it's talking about getting drunk in the spirit. This was something that the in the middle ages Catholic experienced. When the Holy Spirit came upon them, that they would laugh, that they'd be drunk. This is not new to the history of moving of the Holy Spirit in the church of Jesus Christ. And by the way, I'll close with this. To say that something cannot be God because it brought division is not a good place for a Protestant to stand. But most of the time, the division wasn't caused by the people who wanted to bring renewal. So what do we take away from this? I believe that God is always renewing and reviving his church. And there will be something in the future that's going to come. That will catch people's attention. That God will do something novel. Or it's so long ago that it happened that people think it's novel because they don't know any church history. Because it's at least hadn't happened in their generation. And people become interested because of the new thing God is doing. God is good at marketing. (laughs) And knows how to gather a crowd. But the new thing that's often a manifestation related to his presence and power Becomes a controversial thing. And it's almost always the church, part of the church, that speaks against the move of God. Someone asked me, why was it that what happened in Canada did not affect America and England the way it did some other places like Mozambique? And I said, because... Mozambique didn't have a church strong enough to fight it. You see, it's not that the revival stops burning. is that the fear created by the fear mongers causes people to become skeptical and fearful to become a part. When there's no new fuel to touch the fire as far as the Begins to, to burn out because there's no new people coming because fear has won the day. Chauncey won in the in that moment. People thought Chauncey was right. History proved Edwards was right. Almost the whole church of America thought Pentecostalism was not of God. One of the greatest commentators of England, G. Campbell Morgan, said, and I preached in his pulpit, the same pulpit as D. Martin Lloyd Jones later would would have. G. Campbell Morgan was one of the great respect, one of the greatest respected commentators. He said this: Pentecostalism is the last of vomit of Satan. And the founder of the Nazarene denomination said some very bad things as well. History proved those men were wrong. And Seymour was right. History proved that Hank Hanegraaff was wrong. John and Randy have been vindicated by history with millions of people. Uh, um, a guy in England wrote a book about the Toronto blessing and uh He said, it came in like a lion, went out like a lamb. If it was really God, where are the hundreds of thousands of converts and thousands of new churches? I wrote him an email. I found his email. and I wrote him an email. I said, the answer is they are in Ukraine. They are in Mozambique. They are in Brazil. They are in other countries. And it's not hundreds of thousands. It's millions of new believers and scores of thousands of new churches. And that is just the stream I'm in. What about Pensacola, which I don't know anything about the fruit in the sense? I don't know. Of course, I just haven't studied I am definitely, please do not hear me say, I don't think there is. I think there is. I just don't know about it. I believe that there are probably thousands of churches all the world that came out of that. The people that went out from their firestorm schools and stuff. just But just from the one part, not Smithton, not Pensacola, just Toronto, which I believe is only a part of that move. Millions of people, scores of thousands of churches have been started. Heidi and Ron oversee 10,000 alone. Cheon oversees 20 some thousand. That's just two of the six of us that's in the Revival Alliance network. I honestly believe if we'd put all the whole thing together, just to that one season of visitation in the late 90s, that we would have multiple millions of new converts and scores of thousands of new churches. I'm talking maybe even hundreds of thousands of new churches that were started. I'd like to close with one statement. Toronto, from hell's perspective, was no laughing matter.